This is episode 192 of IDRA Class Notes. I think the biggest thing people in general struggle with is this idea that identity is fluid. As we experience life and learn more information, our identity adjusts. This shift in understanding identity as fluid is a shift, right, which requires us to think differently about ourselves and about others. We don't want our college students having those conversations out when they get to their jobs. And if we don't take the time to get to know the history that comes with certain identities, we continue to perpetuate stereotypes and discriminate against people because we just don't know. Welcome to IDRA's Class Notes. My name is Michelle Vega. I'm the Technology Coordinator here at IDRA, and I am with our Director of Operations, Hector Bajorquez, and Dr. Martina McGee. And she is a professor at UTSA, and she has a wonderful class on code switching, and that's what we're going to talk a little bit about. So, Martina, please tell me about your class. Okay. Well, first, a little bit about me. I'm currently a doctoral teaching fellow at UTSA with our interdisciplinary learning and teaching program in African American Studies as I am concluding my doctoral studies there in curriculum and instruction. The class in question is called Race and Identity Through Pop Culture. It is actually a course I designed as a project for one of my courses that I was taking in critical pedagogy. The course's purpose is to have or facilitate conversations about race and identity in a classroom environment through the lens of pop culture, understanding that pop culture and current events has the potential to share stories that have been silenced in ways that people now have greater access to, but we have to approach it with a critical eye. We can't just blindly accept information that's out there, right? And what does that look like when we think about ourselves in positions relating to others? But also, what does that look like as we move into our professions, right? As I'm working with undergraduate students and starting to get them to think about people who come from different neighborhoods than them who may not look like them in a professional setting. And so giving them an opportunity to have those conversations, sometimes to say things that you shouldn't say in a workplace, but let's have them have those conversations in a classroom so that we we get the knowledge that we need, right? We practice having conversations that may be difficult. The class itself actually uses a podcast as a required text because as I'm getting my degree in curriculum and instruction, I'm thinking about ways that we can push back on traditional ways of learning and teaching. And all knowledge that we get doesn't have to be from a textbook. Um, And as I am a millennial, I think about my friends oftentimes saying, oh, I listened to a podcast and I decided to do X, Y, and Z. And the weight that podcasts now have on our, our current society, not just factual places of knowledge, but like things people depend on and take um, and making profound changes in their lives. And so looking at ways to create entry points for our students to learn that are meaningful, right, and extending this idea of learning beyond formal classrooms, right, because we can listen to a podcast while we're working out or walking across campus or in the car, right, we can learn in all of those spaces. And so just really trying to get our students to be more intentional about how we learn and where we learn and then how we use what we learn in our lives, that we're not learning just to get a grade, right? Like this is going to impact our lives beyond this semester. So I think about code switching when people often feel the need to change aspects of themselves when they change environment. So really simply, it may be changing how you speak, how you sound, the words you use, right, is often the biggest aspect of code switching, right? It may be what you wear, right? And so there's always a joke, well, I'm going to use my customer service voice when I make this phone call, right? Because I'm going to change how I speak so the person on the other side of the phone isn't going to know exactly who I am. 
but it, it's something that people do oftentimes unconsciously, right, to sound more professional or to be more accepted in a certain uh, environment. Traditionally in the, in the Mexican-American, to some extent the, uh, the Latinx community, has been a way of navigating two cultures and two languages, navigating the dominant language, but also as you come home to your, to your home language. So you're maybe out in the world, your original language being Spanish, and you're out in the regular world, and in the regular world, <laughs> and um, you don't remember. Don't remember certain th- names, certain nouns. When you're speaking with folks, it's like, I'm here, and aquí está el micrófono, ¿cómo se llama esta cosa? So you'll go back and forth and fill in for certain things that you don't remember. So sometimes it's an intentionally used strategy to communicate when you have two languages and two two cultures living within you. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, it's often referred to negatively or pejoratively when you're with native Spanish speakers and you're trying to translate certain things and rather than translate fully, you'll start borrowing from the other language to fill in things that you may or may not remember mm-hmm. as, you're, as you're speaking. And some of this is, like I said, some of this is intentional and some of this becomes a subconscious way of navigating the, your world both as a Latino or a Mexican and as a, a person in this country. So is that the same as when you speak Spanglish? Not necessarily. Uh, Spanglish, <laughs> Spanglish is when you combine words. Actual words are, com- are being combined. Um, so, mopear. You know. Mopping. Mopping. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mopear is something that's that's kind of Spanglish. Okay. Because you have a mop and you turn you turn the the the, the noun part. mop mop yeah the noun mop and turn it into a verb. Ge- yeah. A verb in Spanish, a gerund in Spanish to mopear. So it's, it's a little mopeando. Yeah. So or parqueando. So that's not really code switching so much as it is you're creating new pieces of language. Um, that uh, we're very we're looked down upon for many, many years, but you go to Mexico now and everybody says parquear. <laughs> and a lot of people will say mopear. Wow. You know. I'm not a language purist, and I think many of us who are in education have never considered ourselves to be language purists and have known that this is vital in order to honor people's experiences, especially our students' experiences. When they come to you and try to express themselves, you take it as they come to you. We don't try to say, no, that's a terrible way of speaking. We'll teach you know, the formal way of writing in order to navigate the world as it is, but you don't browbeat your students to death because they're uh, bringing this language to you. So, Martina, in your class at UTSA, have you all discussed that amongst you and your students, code switching and how they've seen it in their world and, and how they do it themselves? So we think about it within the context of, honestly, how they do it in other classes outside of mine. Students often feel very comfortable to be their whole selves, and so sometimes things are said that you would not necessarily say in another classroom, right? The behavior is very different. And so it's this this idea of how we've been socialized to behave in classrooms versus how we behave at a job versus how we behave at home with our friends or with our family, right? We switch between these identities, all the people that live inside of us, right? Because at work, we behave a certain way, and at home, we behave a different way. And so oftentimes, we see it as a, we talk about it within the context of surviving, 
and finding success. And I'm often described as like a chameleon because my friends joke that they can take me anywhere and I can just kind of blend in. Culture, language, gender identity, sexual orientation, I just kind of blend in, right? But it's because as at such a young age, I was socialized to code switch with the level of proficiency to where sometimes I hate myself for doing it so well. Does it feel more like an act of accommodation versus who you are authentically? Ooh, okay. It's like I said earlier, like having to unlearn and disrupting my own ideas and own ways that I've been socialized, right? And it's mm-hmm. a constant struggle. And at this time, like I'm, I'm really leaning into being more myself in all ways, in all spaces that I, that I exist in. But it's also that fine line of being respectful mm-hmm. of whatever the expected behavior is for that environment, right? So it's complicated because... Right. It's like, being, it's like being in a library, though. If you're in a library, you're quiet. Maybe it's part of what we do authentically to just fit in certain places, like you were mentioning. Yeah. And this is an evolving idea and tradition uh, within both cultures uh, that we're describing. Because code switching, like I said, traditionally in the Mexican-American community had been, as I described it, and as you described, it's something that's been a morphing to in the past 15 years. People don't refer to it because it's not looked down upon so much. I mean, code switching really was looked down upon. We would go and do trainings, and we were told, please do not code switch. If you're going to speak in Spanish, speak in Spanish. If you're going to speak in English, speak in English. Mm. Don't mix the two together. We used to get that all the time from even school districts who would ask us not to code switch to bilingual teachers to model the correct way of speaking in one and the correct way of speaking in the other. And we'd also, we would consistently say, we're not going to do that. We're going to do what feels most comfortable to us and to the audience because that's what they should be doing with students. A lot of what you're describing as well is comes from a, a long, long tradition going way back. Cornell West, Hmm. Back in the 90s, used to talk about it. He said, we need to stop thinking of being multicultural. Back when the, we had the multicultural wars, he said, now we need to think of, of being multicontextual. And he started that conversation back in the mid-90s, and other people have picked it up, understanding what the accommodating aspects of it are and what the survival aspects of it are. And then, basically, that does become a part of who you are authentically. Hmm. You know, it's hmm. that is part of who you are authentically. It's not just because you're having to make do. Right. That's really exciting. I have a couple of questions. There's a lot there that you just spoke that I'd like to discuss and unpack. One of the first things you mentioned was about identity. And what do you see as the biggest challenge, one, for students when it comes to race and class and ethnic identity in the current context? I think the biggest thing people in general struggle with this idea that identity is fluid. As we experience life and learn more information, our identity adjusts. This shift in understanding identity as fluid is a shift, right, which requires us to think differently about ourselves and about others. So acknowledging the shift, but then also understanding all the ways that people exist. I grew up in Alabama, so there are white people and there are black people. But what does that mean when I moved to Texas? when we have a very large Mexican-American population here in San Antonio. I have to then think about this binary that I was raised in and what that really looks like, right? And this is a conversation I'm having with myself at 16 years old. We don't want our college students having those conversations out when they get to their jobs. Because even with all of these very static racial groups, 
there are stereotypes and biases and prejudices that come along with them. And if we don't take the time to get to know the history that comes with certain identities, we don't know. So we say things, we do things, and we continue to perpetuate stereotypes and discriminate against people because we just don't know. And so it's first acknowledging that identity is fluid and then understanding the histories that go along with those identities and then the ways they exist now. So if we look at just race and ethnicity, one, those are two different things. Last semester, I had a student who came in the semester identifying as a woman who is a lesbian. And at some point in the semester, we did another activity. She was like, well, or maybe I'm more non-binary or gender non-conforming, but didn't necessarily tell us new pronouns. And that I love this person who is changing. And so realizing that relationship then impacts how she sees herself. And so being willing to adjust our frame, I think our young people, our youth are really more open to understanding that it's fluid. The challenge then is the adults, the grown people who may be a little more stuck in, no, you're this or you're that. I think that becomes more of an issue as they are in other classes, in their workplaces, in their internships, where people aren't necessarily as accepting of these fluid identities. Right. So I would like to add to that. We had done a session on LGBTQ, I guess, just awareness, right, and how to become an ally. And that was one of the activities that we did during our session was how do you introduce yourself using your pronouns and how do you normalize that? So if I was to introduce myself to Hector right now, I would shake his hand and say, hi, my name is Michelle Vega and my pronouns are her and hers and she and she Mm -hmm. and so even right now even though I practiced it once it's difficult for me and you know I like to think of myself as an open person that that wouldn't normally have an issue with that but it's not like a negative issue it's just I've never done it before and so normalizing that as you mentioned older individuals might have a harder time with it just understanding and being open to maybe changing the way they introduce themselves or the way they speak to be more inclusive. I think that's great that you're doing that now because I mean these are going to be young professionals. They're going to be in the workplace and they're going to encounter all sorts of people and how are they going to react to these individuals as things are going on in their lives and in their communities, I think, giving them a beautiful window to what the future is going to look like for them. I think one of my students said it perfectly this semester. She goes, oftentimes we've been socialized to do and believe. And however we were socialized, we continue to perpetuate those beliefs until we are disrupted and have to unlearn, right? And so oftentimes I think about Growing up in Alabama, I was socialized to perform my gender in a very particular way. I was socialized to perform being a black woman in a particular way. And in so many ways, I've had to unlearn some of those things because they're not necessarily rooted in a place of love of self. And so understanding that other people have been socialized to believe and do certain things. And so acknowledging that in their own personal history, but finding ways that we can disrupt that to where they can be more equitable open to other people in a way that also doesn't devalue myself, mm-hmm. right? I think oftentimes we think about code switching. It's this idea of changing how we perform our, ourselves, our identity, uh, the language we speak, the way we dress, oftentimes to fit in, sometimes for a means of survival. But how can we disrupt those ideas that make us feel the need to do that? Interesting question. Right? There are several levels, I think, to what you're discussing, that, you know, how one deals with this as an individual, as an individual professional in education. But also, one of the things that I find fascinating is how the institution can react to this or should prepare itself to react to this. We often talk about policy with a little p, and it's how certain policies happen at schools. 
And right now, I can't really point to a lot of places where any of these issues are being addressed openly within the K through 12 school system. There may be small movements towards, but there's also a lot of pushback that has happened even just around uh, transgender issues. So what do you suggest as far as people that are in the K through 12 system, not just people as themselves as a, how they react as individuals, but how they as a collective, as part of an institution, react to it and how they can be part of disrupting what's going on at the institution. So there's two levels to that. Right. There's the, actually three, what one does as an individual, what the, one can do as part of a group, and then what one does uh, as part of the institution. How, how would you address those kind of ideas? So my background, I was a K-12 educator, taught in elementary school for eight years, and I think about how our curriculum oftentimes ignores certain people and certain people's stories. And the versions of the stories that we that we hear are not full. And so I think about the silencing of stories as an institution if we prioritized a more inclusive curriculum, because that would come from the top down in some perspectives, where we're looking and hearing about experiences of people whose stories have never been shared. We think about certain people whose stories we do hear, but it's never like, oh, this woman was this great educator and she was single. It's like, well, she was a lesbian. She wasn't single, but we don't want to honor that aspect of her of her identity. Or we talk about Texas history from the victorious United States perspective. Or rarely do we really understand the ways that colonization happened and still continues to happen in our curriculum as it impacts those people who've lived on this land for generations, right? So if we look at it from a curricular standpoint, we make adjustments in our curriculum to be more inclusive and more honest and whole to honor people's stories. Because I know for me, being a student, oftentimes not hearing experiences and stories of people who looked like me, right? It's like, well, this isn't for me. I'm doing this just to learn. I'm doing this to get this grade so I can move to the next grade level. This wasn't about me being a better person and learning about how to live my life. This is just me doing it because I'm told I have to. So if we adjust the curriculum in one way, right? We can honor more people's stories. Our students can see themselves in what they're supposed to learn. If we look at it from the perspective of working and being very intentional on who we hire to work with our students, I know we have to deal with the reality of teacher shortages and a lot of times in uh, low teacher pay in some places, right? Those are realities. So in a perfect world where those are not barriers that we have to deal with, right? Being very intentional on who we have working with certain students. And if we need then to need train those individuals to understand the ways that they've been socialized that continues to perpetuate discrimination and to help our teachers and our administrators to unlearn those things. Because I know we've all been guilty of saying things that were like, man, I shouldn't have said that to that student or I shouldn't have said that in front of those students because I don't necessarily know their full story. We get upset because a student didn't do their homework. But it's like, what happened when they left us yesterday at three o'clock to what happened this morning at seven o'clock? You come to find out, oh, they were they were taking care of someone or they didn't have any food or they were doing these different things that we just don't know about. Right. So we have to unlearn how we've socialized issues around class and worthiness, because that is ingrained in us. And this idea of, oh, we've got to we got to work a little harder, get your education. You can do better. And oftentimes those of us who've overcome or our parents have overcome to put us in certain positions, we have some really funky ways of understanding social class. And we then continue to perpetuate those discriminatory practices in our classrooms. 
that sometimes overlap with race and ethnicity. Not necessarily always, but they definitely go hand in hand. And so we have to be strategic about our curriculum, be strategic about the people who are then living and interacting with our students because it's not a, a simple fix, right? We have to honor what the teachers bring to the classroom, right? Because as much as we adjust the curriculum, who they are as a whole people also impacts how they engage with their students and how they engage with the curriculum as well. Okay, so we have time for one more question. I'm going to go ahead and defer to you, Hector. You have such great questions. Actually, it's two questions. Oh, oh, okay. We have time for two more questions then. How do you suggest disrupting the flow of the traditional classroom as it is right now? Because right now, we're very limited to the language with which we were taught by as professionals. Even the word curriculum is part of a much long older tradition. How can we disrupt the classroom? What ideas do you have? And the second one is what are the best practices that you've seen in this? One big question that has to do with the best practices at disrupting some of these issues. So I do, in addition to working in African American Studies, work in our pre-service teacher program at uh, the university. And one thing I always tell my undergrads is know your standards. Right, at the end of the day, we are held accountable to our teaks. And when we know our teaks, we can shift and reframe those in ways that honors our students and honors ourselves as educators, right? Mm-hmm. In that, I think back to when I used to do show and tell. And I used to get a lot of flack for doing show and tell. Mm-hmm. A lot of flack. And this wasn't too long ago. But I knew my standards. I knew my ELAR standards. I knew my science standards, my social standards, so that I could craft show and tell to be informed by those standards, but also create this moment where our students are meeting all these standards, but having a moment to shine and be the center of attention and be an authority figure on something, right? So first for our educators to disrupt this idea of what curriculums, we need to know our standards. Because when we really look at them, a lot of them are actually really vague, We think about our ELAR standards around just inferencing. Well, what are we inferring about? Like, we could infer about a picture. We could infer about text. We could infer about a movie, right? That inferencing isn't necessarily to a novel or a picture book, right? Mm -hmm. And if we find things that our students are interested in, we step outside of the things that we have always done, right? And so before we can disrupt, we have to know our own things, right? Like, we, we have to, step one, know our standards, Part of that is also disrupting our own ideas of how we've been socialized that learning should happen, right? I know I sat in a row and I did my little, was it SRA? Was that what it was, mm-hmm. right? Like I did that as a student, <laughs> right? And we were like a little bee and there were like different animals. You were like a bird or something, if I remember. If our educators are from that era of learning, right? The ways to meet our students, that doesn't initially meet everyone, right? And so we have to disrupt our ideas about learning and disrupt our ideas about what should be learned. And that first starts with knowing our standards. Because if it comes down to it, when we have to do our annual appraisal at the end of the day, that's what we're going to be held accountable to, right? How do your students, how do you know that your students know the information, the states that they need to know? One of my favorite things, in addition to showing tell, as I was sharing with you guys earlier, is this idea of current events. When we think about, we don't live in isolation, so we shouldn't necessarily learn in isolation, right? Like, I don't just do science in my life at one time. I don't just do math. I don't just do reading or social studies. I am doing all of those things at the same time as I live my life. And so when you think about any current event that happens, I'm having to read information, I'm having to analyze it in various ways that are pulling on all of these threads of those very isolated content areas that we teach in, particularly in elementary school, 
um, or even high school when you have your different periods and you're only learning those one things. And so that's one best practice I could say is if we think about you as a person watching the news or reading the news or whatever is happening, you're using as like science is impacted in it in some capacity. So it's engineering likely, right? How can we be intentional on in how we see things and pull those threads together to inform how we teach? Because at the end of the day, once our students promote to the next grade level or eventually graduate, and we want them to, to apply all of these skills to how they live their life. And as current events happen, it's this shared experience that we can go through together. Because it's also the struggle, right? You have, both of you have very different experiences. So pulling from those may sometimes be complicated because you may have a different levels of experience. But if we experience this current event together, we can then pull on those different threads of our standards, right? Going back to knowing our standards and our curriculum to help our students make meaning and make sense out of what they are expected to learn, right? The things that we as educators will be held accountable to. I think that's a, a really interesting tie back to what you said earlier on for your UTSA course, how you know, you're know you helping the students to learn about who they are and who their future coworkers are or who their current fellow students are. But you know, when I'm listening to you talk about you know, bringing it full circle that way, it's, it's pretty amazing because you're learning about yourself, you're learning about your world, you're learning about how people interpret the news and current events. And so, you know, you can take a really, anything that's happening right now in the news and how one person digests that information versus how somebody else digests that information really lends to a, an amazing conversation and amazing insight. So the way you would interpret something that happened as a black American or how I would interpret something as a Mexican American could be vastly different. And it has nothing to do with one of us being racist or any of those things. It's just where our culture comes from. And so that conversation and just learning about perspectives is amazing. Right. And no no one is necessarily more valid, right? Because right. Each of them come with their own rich histories, right? It's about honoring that history and understanding how that impacts our current and now and being conscious of how then we then go forward to our future. Wow. Okay, so we're running out of time, but before we end, I wanted to ask you, what are a couple of your go-to podcasts, like the podcast that you use in class? Right, so that's NPR Code Switch. Okay. Right, it's one of my favorite ones. I enjoy listening to The Sporkful. I haven't listened to it in a minute, but it's about food. I love food. And so it, it pulls in culture. It pulls in just other aspects of the food industry and like food itself and maybe histories of certain items. Mm-hmm. I also listen to Up First. It's another NPR podcast. It's usually less than 15 minutes and it kind of gives you a cap, a recap of yesterday's news or what's coming up today, kind of things that have happened. And it's a wide range in things that have happened. Every morning I wake up, it's already like on my phone for me to listen to as I'm getting ready in the morning. But yeah, those are, I would say, some of my top three. Okay, well, thank you so much to both Hector and Martina for talking to us today. It's a fascinating topic and I can't wait till our next podcast. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.